from Green Biz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, why cities are revving up their autonomous vehicle rollouts, why you can't ignore the blockchain even if you don't quite understand it, and Paul Hawken takes aim at the war on carbon. We're giving peace a chance this week on 350. It's October 13th, Friday the 13th, 2017. Welcome to this week's episode of Green Biz 350. I'm Joel McCowan. Joining me as always across the nation is Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Greetings from Jersey, Joel. Probably beautiful fall Jersey weather. You know what? It has been very warm again, uh, although the temperature dropped about 20 degrees overnight with some rain. And uh, I know I've been following very closely, of course, what's going on out there. I'm, I'm sure you're in the haze, right? We are living in a shroud of smoke. I had uh, a, a young colleague who uh, over for dinner the other night who uh, used to live in Beijing, and, and she looked up at this, at this bright orange sun that was getting ready to set this red never you know color we never see here she said kind of feels like beijing uh that same orangey glow in the in the sky and 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 then you just feel it on your lungs it's it's pretty scary i mean we in here in oakland are 50 or 60 miles as the proverbial crow flies from the the fires you know out of harm's way so far, at least, it's far from under control, uh, but I, I'm, it, it's got to kind of jump the bay in order to get here. But it's scary. It is scary what's going on not very far from here. There's just these firestorms just rip-roaring through neighborhoods, and people barely have time to get out. It's it's frightening. Yeah, I have a couple people that I know that live up there, and I hate to say it, but I've, of course, been watching my favorite wineries very closely, and just the the economic devastation, um, you know, as well as the human devastation is just horrible. It just And there's a pretty wide net there because you've got the grape growers and the, and the vintners, but you've got truck drivers and lots of immigrant labor and lots and lots and lots of small businesses that rely on, on the winery industry just for all kinds of things, much as you would at Financial District and Wall Street or the or Hollywood or whatever, different other economic clusters. So yeah, I mean, and, and I mean, some of them don't even have businesses anymore, so it's sort of moot for now. But yeah, there's going to be a, there's going to be a long time coming back. Well, I'm looking forward to a week where we don't have to talk about some kind of natural disaster. No offense. No, no, no. <laughs> it's, horrible. Mean, it, it's, it's horrible. This is exactly seems to be the new normal, but. Uh, let's get on to some happier things. Um, we launched a new podcast this week, as you know. Yay! Yeah, I know. It was kind of cool. It's called Center Stage, and it's the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. So we do these uh, three events, two Verge events, one in Silicon Valley, actually moving to Oakland uh, in 2018, uh, Verge Hawaii in uh, in, the, in June, and then, of course, the GreenBiz conference in February. And we do a lot of um, terrific main stage interviews. Heather, you do some, I do some, and some, several others do. And we have we've had 
videos of these uh, on on the website for a long time, but we decided just to do audio only versions. And I'll admit having borrowed the concept from TED Radio. If you go to greenbiz.com/centerstage or just go to the uh, page for this webcast, you'll see links to it. We're now offering twenty minute. Uh, great one-on-one or one-on-two interviews. In fact, we started with the one you did with Wayne Paselli, the uh, head of the uh, Humane Society back uh, in February at GreenBiz, Heather. That was kind of a fun conversation. It was a fun conversation. And um, it actually, now that I know pe- more people are, li- I mean, everyone's listening, but it um, it does there's just so many great people that we get at the events and I'm glad we can bring it to a broader audience. And, and, um, it's wonderful to go back and look, look and and listen to these interviews a few months later because, um, some, some of these comments are very prescient and, um, and it's always great, great to have follow-up material. So it's wonderful. And I, I encourage people to listen. Yeah. I had fun putting it together and I identified without breaking a sweat about 30 or 40 uh, great interviews uh, that we want to bring to center stage. We'll start rolling them out every week. And that was before we did our Verge conference just a few weeks ago. And so there's more, and then of course more coming in February and the hits just keep rolling along. So speaking of rolling along, let's get into the week in review. So Joel, one of my favorite topics, which is not one of your favorite topics, uh, because it's still so very esoteric, but blockchain. I continue to follow this technology with very close attention. Um, it's Every week, I, it seems I have a new use case. The thing about um, this particular technology is it started out in the financial services world, right? So it's the hyperledger underneath the Bitcoin um, digital currency. And but lo and behold, it turns out that there are so many fascinating applications in the sustainability world, energy, supply chain, traceability, um, even carbon credit management. So I, I took a look at um, some more experiments that I feel um, the community should be watching, and, and I wrote about that this week. Um, and we also had a great World Economic Forum uh, contribution, which, which explored the sort of the, the, the thing I alluded to a moment ago, which is the carbon uh, the credits. How do you how do you verify these credits more um, holistically and seamlessly? And blockchain is now being studied uh, as a as a mechanism for doing that. So it seems like it's the today's you know do everything the solution for everything. Um, which you know I'm sure there will be a backlash, but but so many great ex- experiments going on. Yeah, I, I I don't dislike this topic. I just find it kind of challenging to understand and it's very much like trying to explain the internet in 1995 i mean if you were to say that you know everything is connected you can get all this information and we didn't even know in 1995 so many of the things that we do now that we take for granted on a daily basis um and you know to try and explain that in 1995 was like what well Sure, I can. My computer is connected to other computers. I just dial it up on the phone, and it goes beep, beep, makes all these noises, and all of a sudden, I'm connected. How is this different? And what do you mean I can connect to a computer in Asia or Europe or anywhere on Earth? And and it, it's just kind of hard to get your brain wrapped around this. But I love where this is going, and you you lay out these eight companies and technologies, and you know. I was just looking at this one, Greenium Network, and to read this is you know uses blockchain technology along with artificial intelligence 
to create an energy marketplace. I mean, I could stop there. That represents both large and small buyers and sellers. But blockchain with artificial intelligence is getting pretty wonky. And I think, you know, in the end, like the internet, pretty revolutionary. Believe me, as a writer, I have a hard time explaining it. But the way I've broken it down is to think about the building blocks of, of these transactions and how you automate them and make them more seamless, uh, make them distributed. And that's the chain part of it, right? It's, it's across a whole chain of contact points and transactions. So uh, I, I, I hope one day I don't have to explain it every time I write about it, but um, it is certainly fascinating and certainly keeping me very busy. I love this topic, blockchain, and all it represents and all the transformative power it has and you know i'm i will continue to try and, and get my head around it and you continue to help bring to light how all of this has the potential to transform sustainability speaking of transforming not everything is moving along at digital speed and some you know progress continues to be slow and james murray the uh, editor of business green had a piece this week on on the chemical sector and and how they're just kind of lagging on the uh, Paris climate trajectory and just not making the kind of progress. And you know they they're generating twenty percent of their revenues on products that are designed to help tackle climate change, but uh, they're not really realigning their operations in the way that we need to be doing that. So this is, comes from a, a study that the CDP, the formerly the Carbon Disclosure Project, did of the uh, of the industry, and it warned chemical firms that they need to respond better to the new regulations that are happening in Europe and China, and recognize that they could be exposed to significant reputational risks and probably financial risks too similar to that diesel moment that we experienced in the auto industry, Volkswagen and other companies. And so this is, um, this is something to watch. Yeah, I think for me, the, the, it's, one, it's another example of an industry that has so much to gain from the, the low carbon economy, right? Being able to create new technologies and products and, and chemicals um, that, that are more sustainable, that, that can biodegrade, that don't you know, poison the oceans and poison humans and poison animals and, and, and so forth. That is such a great opportunity. But the operational side of these organizations needs to get a lot more, um, you know, with it, if you will, on the, on the science-based goals movement, right? You'd think these, one, these companies would be among the first to, to create science-based targets. They are, after all, uh, scientists. However, um, oh, is it ASCO Noble is um, one of only two companies in, the, in this research that had a science-based target, which surprised me. I thought, whoa, okay. Um, so it, it's, an, it's another example of our need here at GreenBiz to be on top of these follow-ups, right? And, and make sure that um, people are delivering on the commitments that they're, they're saying that they will. Yeah, that's one of the struggles we have is because there's so many announcements and commitments that are being made. And, but following up on those a year or two or five years later, saying, well, how did they do? Because they got all that publicity when they decided to announce zero waste or 100% renewable energy. And there is something, I think, an emerging movement that we're going to be seeing more about in the coming months and, and, and next few years, where the chemical industry is sort of looking at, at plastic packaging, which, as the CDP report states accounts for uh, a quarter of global plastic usage and about 8 million metric tons of waste 
which all of which has a, a, a climate and carbon impact. You know, I think they're going to start to sort of look at the circular model here of how do we create plastics that we can get back and depolymerize and turn them back into new plastics. That's There's never been an incentive for them to do that before. And I think we're going to start to see some movement on that. One of the things that just happened is is China clamp down on recycling from from uh, recycling imports so a lot of us recycling waste that we put out on curbside ends up in china where it's processed in you know, cardboard plastic and, and some other commodities they've stopped accepting that particularly uh plastics three through seven which are the the, the harder to recycle polymers um, that's going to become a problem, uh, and it's going to filter back, uh, cascade back to the to the chemical companies that make this stuff, and and we're going to be saying, and municipalities and others saying, hey, you created this stuff, what are you doing about it? And so I think this is an opportunity. And by the way, all of this circles back to climate and carbon emissions and energy and petroleum and everything else. Yeah, two other things I'm watching closely, Joel, are the Ocean Conservancy, right? Because they're really kicking up their corporate activity and collaborative activity as far as addressing the, the ocean plastics issue in particular. And P&G, uh, uh, Procter & Gamble, has just come out with some new information about how they're dealing with plastics in their supply chain, which I think we should probably get on top of and, and follow that one up too. So some good, good things happening and uh, lots, lots to write about on this particular issue. So the other piece that I really liked this week was from our contributing or editor-at-large, um, David Crane, who wrote a piece about Puerto Rico and bringing it back to life energy-wise, energy sort of in a different way than it's happening now, which is kind of energy as usual. So what's happening, you know, as, as the grid in Puerto Rico was devastated, they're you know looking to rebuild it as it was the same old same old the central power plant with all the wires and you know transmission distribution lines and that's partly the doing of prepa the puerto rican electric power authority which is um already you know not a shining example of of energy utilities kind of a wobbling um, monopoly on the island, but they're going to go with what they know, and as most utilities do. David maps out a really interesting scenario, a, a new kind of company that would provide power to Puerto Rico from a public authority, or move it from the public authority of PREPA to a freshly capitalized private company, and uh, would do the new kind of grid, the distributed, decentralized, renewably powered, using uh, liquid natural gas, compressed natural gas, as well as solar and, and maybe wind. And it's a really compelling vision that he admits is not likely to happen, at least the way things are going. But I, as David loves to do, just throw a whole different idea out into the, into the public agenda. Yeah, I mean, I think these islands that have just been devastated by the, this spate of hurricanes, or what do you want, a fleet of hurricanes, it, they do have an opportunity to completely rebuild their grids. I mean, I think it's, it, I always think about when, the classic example of the wireless revolution. And one of the reasons that some of the countries in Europe got ahead of it so quickly and, and went mobile and wireless so much more quickly than the United States is because of the, of the established grid. We, we, it was okay. What we had, the phone network was okay and good enough. 
Um, but in other countries, it wasn't. So it was it was imperative for them to to leapfrog right over over what we had here. So I would love to see these islands leapfrog. And I think um, you do have some some really rich people like Elon Musk talking about it and, and looking at ways that maybe they can bring private capital to bear. Um, I would love to see that as well. Um, not much more to say, I think, it, it, to be determined and to be watched, but I think it will take private money, clearly. Yeah, and just uh, David points out that aside from the fact that it's a decentralized, solar-driven network of microgrids and cheaper and quicker to build with uh, less opportunity for financial waste and corruption, there's also improving local air quality, providing sound and smell abatement against the generators currently on the island, but no small thing on uh, in, in Puerto Rico and, and a lot of other Caribbean economies. And he says, to the extent that we can forge this clean energy system into a new business paradigm, it re- will represent a major step forward in the fight against global warming. And as he concludes, not shabby. Uh, and it isn't shabby. This is exactly you know where the world needs to go. And the question is really more political, as always, than than technological or anything else. Can we move Puerto Rico in that direction? Boy, I hope so. But it, not how we normally do it these days. And we're the, the political forces are not in our favor. Joel, you you spent some time last week with one of um, one of your longtime uh, collaborators and and uh, contacts in the industry, Paul Hawken. You, you were able to interview him, um, and and you were also able to catch some capture some great audio. So I'm curious, what 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 was on his mind? Well, first of all, just some context. Uh, I had the great pleasure last week of um, moderating a conversation at a really interesting community kickoff event in Marin County, California, just north of San Francisco, the the storied county going way back of, of it's both uh, largely upscale and also, you know, the kind of the cool place to be where the beautiful people have lived. And it's, uh, you know, that's the stereotype at least. But uh, Marin, like any county uh, in America, has, it, has both wealth and, and you know, lower income areas, and uh, but they, it's very progressive politically, and they were launching their climate action plan. The county uh, board of supervisors uh, had approved this and uh, five pillars of climate action, and um, they had a community celebration, a sort of an event, uh, and I hosted a conversation between Paul Hawken, the environmentalist and entrepreneur and author. Uh, and Leah Seligman, who works for the B Team, which is this nonprofit initiative that brings global leaders from business, civil society, and government together to work on a lot of issues. Uh, pre- previous to that, she was the uh, first chief sustainability officer for NRG Energy, where she worked for the aforementioned David Crane. And this was a really interesting conversation. It was Paul, as we've talked about in the past, has this uh, book out called Drawdown, which is about how do you not just you know cap emissions, but actually reduce and solve global warming and climate change by drawing down emissions. Um, and and Leah, who has been working also in, at international level with with business and other leaders, it was a fun conversation for, in front of uh, you know three or four hundred county residents. 
and um, and and live streamed on local television and things like that. So what what is I'm curious what is he most optimistic about? You know, as far as all the drawdown areas, I know there were some great ideas for startups and so forth and, and innovation that he laid out in that in that book. Um, is is he seeing activity in any particular area? Well, I think there's activity across a lot of things. What Drawdown did is looked at 80 solutions to drawing down carbon dioxide and global greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, many of which are, are, are already here and they just need to be scaled, things like uh, de- you know ending deforestation and things that you'd expect like wind and solar, but things you wouldn't expect, like the number one solution has to do with refrigeration and the emissions that come out of uh, refrigerant gas, refrigerants used in, in those technologies and how they escape and, and are very potent global warming gases. And, and educating and empowering women and girls turns out to be one of the most impactful things you can do. They ran the, the numbers, uh, did the science working with dozens of PhDs around the world. It's a pretty interesting and very optimistic book. But having said that, Paul can be a bit of a contrarian. And he's also, probably like you and me, Heather, a defender of the language, making sure we use the right words uh, and frame things the right way and naming the goals that we really want, not these interim goals. So I'll play a couple clips from this uh, conversation on stage with Paul and Leah, but this is going to be from from Paul in this particular uh, segment, where he says, explains that the language we currently use to talk about climate change is neither accurate nor inspiring. Well, there's two issues. One is science, uh, getting the science right. The other is motivation. So the language around climate is generally war metaphors and negativity. And I can combat climate change, fight climate change, slashing emissions, the carbon war room, uh, decarbonization, negative emissions. Does that inspire you? And, um, uh, and the problem with that language is that, first of all, you can't fight change. Good luck. The climate changes every nanosecond, and it always will, and thank God it does, because it produces weather and evolution and glaciers and melting and drought and rain and all the other things that we love about this beautiful planet. So the fact is we don't want to fight change. And if you do, it's Don Quixote. And so nothing will happen. So what we want to do, basically, is deal with what we are doing down here, not up there, which is basically global warming, and so changing our activity here. And the other thing about uh, the language, which is decarbonization is the word that's used. Well, and we saw carbon-free Marin. You better hope not. You're all made of carbon. Uh, So so we don't want to use carbon-free. It's actually the other way around. Decarbonization is the name of the problem. We took and land use and with fossil fuels, coal, gas, and oil, and we put it up there. We decarbonized. So that can't be the name of the solution. The name of the solution is recarbonization, is bring it back home. Um, so, that, and so, but again, in a deeper sense, I just think that the problem with fighting climate change is that it makes it other like it's an enemy, like it's bad, and that we're right, and that we're good, and we're going to somehow smite it down. And that is dualism. That's dual mind. And that thinking is what got us into this situation, thinking that there's other places, other people, other races. 
and that's not going to get us out. And what's going to get us out is to do what carbon does, which basically is the element that holds hands and collaborates. And that's what we have to do. Joel, you mentioned that uh, Paul tackles the issue of not just capping emissions, but drawing them down and, and reducing them. And I, the, Paris, the Paris goal is to limit the temperature increases by two degrees Celsius. I'm curious, what, what does he think about that goal? I've seen some other people saying we need to do more, 1.5 de- degrees I've, I've seen coming out. But wh- where does he stand on that goal? And, and, you know, and now that the U.S. The US has pulled out, you know, what's his, his view for wh- whether we're going to get there? Well, again, sort of going back to the you know conventional wisdom and how we typically talk about and frame this, uh, Paul hates that whole two degree, one and a half degree. He says those are not even the way we should be thinking about this. And uh, I'm going to play a little, a little bit longer clip here. I mean, he punches some holes in some you know conventional wisdom about two degrees is um, isn't even science based. It's not even a science based goal. And how that whole framing has led us down a path that um, he thinks has really stymied the whole climate movement and talks about why, in some ways, the environmental movement isn't succeeding. This is a bit of a longer clip, but pretty interesting stuff, so let's listen in. I'd like to take a slightly contrarian view here. Uh, Two degrees is not science-based. It was invented by a German scientist in 1994, Sheldon Huber, and he pulled it out of thin air because the minister, the ministry, the German ministry didn't understand the scientific papers. And they said, come on, we need something we can understand. He said, 2C is not science-based. The science is, there's a four to one range on how many more gigatons of CO2 we can emit before we hit 2C from 125 billion to 500 billion. And just expanded, by the way, last week in the new paper. So it's not science-based. But even if it was, let's say it was, the problem is it means nothing to almost every single person in the world. Think about it. It's like you wake up in Botswana, in Belgium, in wherever, and you say, hey, you know, 2C. It's like zero recognition, zero meaning. And the, the core to me, of the reason the climate establishment has failed is about communication. It's climate communication, not the science. The science is extraordinary. But the communication has been inept. And that's a future existential threat. 2C, 2C, 2C. What do we know from neuroscience? The human brain is not wired to respond to future existential threat. So what does the IPCC and everybody talk about? Oh, 2C or 1.5C or this C or that C. We don't work that way. We are going in the back door to humanity and it's padlocked. And that's future existential threat. And we wonder why it's failing, why people don't respond, why they're numb, why they don't do anything. That's why. And the front door to humanity is wide open. It's wide open. It's called human needs. And what humans need is food and housing and support and dignified living wage jobs that give them self-respect, respect to their family, respect from their community, that mean something, that have purpose. And we're the only species without full employment. Think about that. Only one. 
and never has there been so many good jobs to do on Earth. And so the pathway to reversing global warming is to create one billion jobs that are regenerative development. And 98 of the 100 solutions in Drawdown are regenerative development, which means we heal the future and sell it in the present. Right now, we steal the future and sell it in the present. And so companies are stealing I'm sorry, if they're stealing the future and then getting their emissions right, it's like, well, that's good, and they should, and that's fantastic, but really, what, are the, what a business are they in, in the first place? So, and, Paul, Paul you're, you're saying, just to be, I mean, I get the two-degree thing that you're saying, but, but so the only goal that matters is drawdown? The only goal that matters is humanity. Well, and civilization, that's what matters. And our children, and our children's children, that's what matters. What matters is life. That's what matters. Yeah, okay, but I'm just so saying is we can't communicate that with 2C. That's all I'm saying. It has no meaning. How do you communicate it? I, mean, I just did. I don't think anyone's going to disagree. I, I just did. Well, but, but in terms of the goal that we need to be setting, because people need goals. People need, need doors to walk through. They need... To, to have a have a, a an endpoint, just some some threshold that they need. What what are we aiming for here? You know, it, it goes back to the if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. Uh, that's how most people think. No one's going to argue with humanity. No one's going to argue with food and and and, and well-being of, of people. And I want to talk a little bit about that in a second. Um, but we need goals. We do need goals, but we, the first goal should be to look at the situation as a whole and to realize that our communication is failing and that we're breathing our own exhaust in this area and we're not really listening to people and we're not responding to people's needs. And we wonder then when people feel marginalized and have no value that they vote for demagogues and dictators and oligarchs. That's why. And so unless we actually create jobs that actually have meaning, that really do address what humans need, and what we all need is the same. You know, I'm with Wonder Woman, only love will save us, okay? And so, you know, I mean, and, and that's true. Yeah. And so, in terms of goals, there's no, everything that Leia's talking about is absolutely right in terms of businesses measuring. If you don't measure it, you can't manage it. And money's lying everywhere on the floor in those companies in terms of waste, in terms of the kind of energy they're using, the way they're using energy. Those are really credible, good things for business to do. But I'm saying it doesn't create employment for the billion people who don't have meaningful work. So amidst all the technology and everything else that's involved with sustainability and clean technology and, and climate mitigation, language matters much in the same way that we talk about what gets measured gets managed you know if you're not stating the right goal in this case drawing down climate change not just limiting it to a degree and a half or two degrees if you state the actual goal you want it changes the way we think about problems and about how we think about solutions and that was a big takeaway from this evening and i think that was really interesting and inspiring to the marin community So let's turn to uh, technology again, and, and uh, autonomous vehicles in particular. Um, this is really an interesting arena uh, that the self-driving cars um, that is happening much, much faster than anybody imagined. In fact, just this week, California's DMV, the famous, you know, you wait in line for your driver's license, but issues a lot of rules of the road, literally, um, started the process that 
is going to allow some AVs, autonomous vehicles, to be on California roads as soon as next June. And so I think a lot of states are leapfrogging, trying to leapfrog one another to become the the hotbed of technologies and business and economic development with autonomous vehicles, um, with autonomous vehicles at the lead. But Heather, you've been looking into this. Uh, you did an interesting story this week. Talk about what you've been hearing. So there's clearly the place that autonomous vehicles will be used first, I think, is cities, right? So there's so many great use cases in the metropolises building all around the world. You've got San Jose looking at this, Los Angeles, Columbus, Ohio, Detroit. And the thing that they're trying to get on top of um, much more quickly than they did when the, when the automobile made its way into cities was how will this affect uh, pedestrians? How will it affect cyclists, deliveries? Um, what does the city need to do in terms of parking spots um, when these things come into to play? How can a city introduce entirely new services? So, for example, a service that gets homeless veterans to new job opportunities or a, a route, a, a health service, you know, a healthcare organization picking up expectant mothers and getting them to their appointments, right, using autonomous vehicles. So the cities have been very, very active. I mean, a couple of years, last several years, Los Angeles actually started a whole coalition, I think two years ago, because there wasn't actually a lot happening at the, the state and federal level. Well, now um, what's happening, you mentioned the state um, action in California. At the federal level, there's, a couple, there's some legislation pending um, in both the Senate and the House that will dramatically open up the numbers of vehicles that they will allow on the road. And that actually has some, some of the cities a little skittish. Um, they're worried that the federal, um, federal safety requirements aren't as high as, it, as, as, <laughs> as they, they want um, in an urban environment. So many, many, many the, the federal level stuff is focused on sort of longer distances, right? From place to place, not from neighborhood to neighborhood. So, um, Cities are absolutely on top of this, and uh, I had a great panel at Verge on this topic uh, that featured Sacramento and San Jose, and I spent a longer period of time with Shireen Santosham. She's the chief innovation officer for the city of San Jose. I interviewed her about what the city is looking for, um, the things that they're looking for technology-wise as well as safety-wise, and here is that conversation. San Jose has been very aggressive with its uh, advanced thinking about autonomous vehicles, and you've you've embarked on a very groundbreaking program. Um, I'm just wondering about the backstory. So, what prompted the decision to actually formally set a testing program, and and on top of that, what use cases do you plan to study? So, we're lucky to have over a million residents in our city. And we're also blessed with tremendous growth. So we are set to grow by 40% by the year 2040. And that's an additional 470,000 residents. And for those of you who have been to the Bay Area, you know, we are the largest city in Silicon Valley. Um, and the traffic here is, is quite a challenge. And today, two-thirds of trips made to work are made in single occupancy vehicles. And so when you think about all of those additional folks in single occupancy vehicles and the traffic situation today, um, and what could it 
see if we continue on the same path, uh, you realize it's just not tenable from a quality of life standpoint. And we really do have to find innovative, radical solutions that combine switching people to public transportation options. And our vision for autonomous vehicles is really that they're safe, that they're shared, and that they're electric so that we create a situation where we're reducing greenhouse gas emissions as well as getting people around the Bay Area better and improving quality of life. And so that's really what prompted uh, this effort. And that combined with the leadership of our mayor who last year launched a smart city vision to make San Jose the most innovative city in America by 2020. And it makes a lot of sense with the companies in our backyard who are the companies that develop autonomous vehicle technologies and maps, the IoT infrastructure that's needed around it. So it made a lot of sense for us to uh, embark uh, on this journey. So you, you mentioned passenger vehicles specifically. Is that the primary use case then? Are you going to study as well things like delivery vehicles? I'm just curious about what vehicle means in, in, this, in this vision. Today, it's still early days in that kind of vehicle space, but we focused on predominantly passenger vehicles. And the use cases are around um, five different areas. So the first is around connecting our major transit hubs, specifically our airport to our train station. And our train station is called Gerardon Station, and it will grow to be essentially the Grand Central Station of the West. It is going to be home to seven major transit lines, including our high-speed rail. And we expect traffic in that uh, train station to grow almost eightfold. And so you know, we really want to know how we can uh, manage that increase in uh, flow of people coming through our, our train station. And we don't have an airport connection to our airport today. The second is around connecting people to jobs. And we have a very um, traffic-heavy corridor called Stevens Creek. And that area can, connects our downtown to many different corporate campuses like Apple and others, as well as a major um, thoroughfare for shopping called Santana Row. And so, you know, that's our second use case. Our third is around an area in North San Jose that's about a mile squared called their Transportation Innovation Zone. And that's where a lot of the experimentation and looking at um, multimodal networks where we've got trains and um, cars and pedestrians and bikes and how will autonomous vehicles fit into an environment like that. So that's another area. Uh, the fourth is around equity. So, you know, as we transition the transportation system broadly, we need to make sure that that happens in an equitable manner. And so the fourth area is around connecting um, the shelter for, for veterans who were formerly homeless to public transit. And so really thinking about um, how do we make sure that we create use cases not just for um, the upper echelon, but for, for everyone. And then the fifth is we just really left it open and said, hey, we, we don't know um, what, uh, what the art of the possible is. And so let's just open our downtown to autonomous vehicle testing and see what comes back to us in the form of uh, proposals. So you actually have 
what's called a request for information to identify the technologies that could play a role in those use cases. So what criteria are you using to filter those selections? In other words, what is it that you're looking for? Um, obviously, you can't read the whole RFI for me, but what is it that's predominant in there that, that you will use to select? Overall, we really want to gain information on how to safely deploy AVs in an equitable and an environmentally friendly manner and, and learn how to scale them. So the criteria that we, we laid out in that request for information was around safety and reducing traffic fatalities. So we do have a Vision Zero goal here in San Jose, like many other cities. The second is around reducing environmental impacts and specifically looking at reducing vehicle miles traveled. We know that there's the potential for AVs to actually increase vehicle miles traveled, and we really want to get um, more vehicles off the road and uh, make sure that they're deployed in an environmentally friendly manner. The third, as I mentioned earlier, is building a balanced and equitable transportation system. So how do we make sure that no one is left out as we make this very large uh, transition over the next uh, 20 years or so? The fourth is about creating a more livable and walkable city. We know that AVs have the potential to really change the landscape of a city. So you can reclaim parking lots, potentially reclaim lanes on highways. And so how do we think about um, that urban scape and making increasing the quality of life for our residents and building cities for people, not cars? And then the fifth is around data sharing. So we know that there's been a lot of conversation in the space around what data should be owned from, by the private sector, what is needed in the public sector. And so we're really hoping to contribute substantially to that conversation. We have created an open API for those companies that work with us to get real-time traffic data from our signals, as well as other types of transportation data. And our hope is that these pilots will also have these companies share back critical information that will help us plan for transportation needs in the future. Now you have teamed with a, uh, a couple of organizations to help you sort this through. I'm curious how you picked those partners. Why, why did you go out to an outside partner to, to, to help with this? And, and who are you teaming with? You know, this is a big, hairy problem. And certainly no one stakeholder can attack uh, the traffic issues and transportation issues uh, in an area like San Jose alone. And so we know we need to work closely with our private sector. We know we need innovative thinkers. And luckily, we live in Silicon Valley and so have access to some of the best and the brightest in terms of our startup community. And so we worked with both Prospect Silicon Valley as well as the Silicon Valley Leadership Group. Prospect Silicon Valley, they're an urban tech incubator for smart cities. They bring together the public and the private sector. And they um, really focus on environmental impact and, and driving uh, uh, sustainable solutions in cities, in the urban environment. And so they've just been a fantastic partner and have helped us think through um, not only how to approach uh, this issue, but also bring, bring industry together uh, to figure out how we can um, create a dialogue and these pilots. 
And Silicon Valley Leadership Group similarly did uh, played a similar role for us. They they are an amazing organization that can, is able to bring together multiple stakeholders, and um, also think through some of the policy implications. And so, we've been working closely with them uh, and private sector partners to figure out what's going to really work uh, from both a private sector perspective and a public sector perspective, because we certainly um, both need to be at the table as we move forward in the space. So essentially, you're just starting this. <laughs> it's just early days here. What's next? Like, what, what, sh- what sort of mile markers should we be looking for from, from the city as far as uh, progress? So we released the RFI in, in June, and we've re- received um, several uh, potential concepts. And so we are in the process of sorting through those concepts and are narrowing down on a small set of those that we will consider working with. And so you should look out for announcements later this year. And uh, we hope to really lead and shape the development of AVs here in the Bay Area, but really, you know, across the country. And so that leads me to my final question, right? So I definitely will watch <laughs> for the announcements. Um, you know, Everyone's watching San Jose. So how will you share this information with other cities? You know, are you planning to collaborate with others in, in terms of what you're learning? And, and, and if so, how and, and, what, and what, what do you hope to learn from them as well? Yes, absolutely. I think this space is so new. We all need to learn from each other, share best practices. And so we'll, we're looking at case studies, convenings, and I think there'll be uh, interest from a lot of parties, so hopefully there will be some um, press interest, and I think uh, the word will will get out quickly. Uh, we are not necessarily the first city to deploy AVs, but we're we're trying to be the first city to do it right and really shape um, shape the space. And uh, we're hoping that we can really uh, help our other cities and uh, also learn from them in the process. Shireen, thank you for your time today. Very much appreciate it. Thank you. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350, and you'll find more about the organization, stories, events, and other things we've mentioned in this episode. And while you're there, look for a link to our new podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. Send us emails at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love your comments and questions. And thanks to GreenBiz 350 director, Stephanie Joyce, and GreenBiz managing editor, Elsa Wenzel. We'll be back next week for another edition of GreenBiz 350. From all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.